Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Peabody Award winners were announced this week. Among them, Type Investigations and Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX for their Monumental Lies series. We spoke with reporters Brian Palmer and Seth Fried Wessler when their series first aired last year. They also wrote about their investigation for Smithsonian Magazine. The pair filed 175 open records requests to track public spending on Confederate memorials and organizations. They found that more than 40 million taxpayer dollars have been spent on the maintenance and expansion of Confederate monuments and sites over the past decade. Brian and Seth visited more than 50 of these sites, and when we spoke in December, I asked them how they started the investigation. We went on the road and we began visiting dozens of places that tell the story of the Civil War and of Confederacy and of slavery to really try to figure out what the story was that was being told at these sites. At the same time, we tried to figure out how much money was being spent on these sites. And so we filed dozens of public records requests and called through tax documents and public records, uh, public legislative reports to figure out what we're spending on, on these places. And what we found is that Confederate sites, many of them, are telling a story that's really not based in fact, but grounded in in narratives that defend the Confederacy and uh, paint a picture of the history of slavery that whitewashes history entirely. Well, I want to get to the story, certainly, but the story that you did file together for a Smithsonian magazine, it's called The Costs of the Confederacy, $40 million taxpayer dollars over the last decade paid to upkeep and support these places. Can you give us a breakdown of the costs? What were they spent on? That's a snapshot. $40 million in the past 10 years. Significant amount of money. But my real concern, uh, in addition to how much is being spent now, is how much went into subsidizing these sites that present a narrative that either distorts or erases the enslavement of African Americans, my ancestors. The first push of monument construction was really 1880s, 1890s. So this is where you see public funding as well as significant private donations going into the uh, funding of of these places. But Confederate memorial associations were receiving money to take care of cemeteries pretty much directly after the Civil War, which made sense. You had a lot of uh, Confederate deceased soldiers that needed to be buried. That money, which started to flow in 1860s, 1870s, kept flowing. So there are all of these really creative ways to keep these subsidies not simply for the initial purpose. So now that money, is it going just to maintain these sites? We know that, you know, sites have been built up into the 50s and the 1960s. Or are they actually expanding any of them at this point? In Georgia, there are a number of state and county-run parks where there's a full articulation of the history of the Civil War of Confederate leaders. And public money is going to support these sites um, to keep them running. In many cases, the public money is just going to keep them operating as they have for decades. And in some cases, these places have expanded. So we spent a lot of time 
on the road and in our story, writing about a place called Beauvoir, which is in Mississippi, in Biloxi. It's called the Jefferson Davis Presidential Library. That institution has received over $20 million in the last decade. And that money, which came from the federal government and from the state of Mississippi, has helped the place expand. After Hurricane Katrina, Beauvoir, the estate where Jefferson Davis lived in the years after the war was heavily damaged. And federal dollars uh, went to Beauvoir to help it rebuild. Half of the $17 million that came from the federal government went to build a new museum and library that really didn't exist before the storm and that tell a story about Jefferson Davis and about the Civil War that glorifies him, that talks about the sort of bravery of Confederate soldiers and proposes that Jefferson Davis was a benevolent slave owner. Well, and it's a very similar narrative that we found at, say, Tombs House, and they don't Tombs House in Washington, Georgia, doesn't get the same amount of funding, but it had a lovely renovation, again, substantially with public funding. And when I visited, I was the only person there on a very cold day in January, and I went through the entire house and uh, saw the, the periodization of Mr. Toombs's career, but nothing on the walls about the defense of slavery uh, and his role in enslaving people. So I asked a docent, so where, where is that? And she said, well, we don't have anything on the wall, but she handed me a WPA slave narrative by a gentleman named Alonzo Fontroy Toombs, and this gentleman was was singing the praises of his massa and his enslavement. We are used to having people deploy the so-called black confederate and the loyal slave, but this is where I handed off to, to Seth, and Seth tracked down a scholar uh, who gave us a very different story about Toombs. Well, at both the Robert Toombs House and the A.H. Stevens State Park, both of which are in Georgia, mm-hmm. b- both of which are owned by the state. In the case of the Toombs House, it's now run by the county. We hear this story about valiant and noble Confederate leaders, but really no narrative about their position on slavery or about people who these men held in bondage and who then escaped the the places where they were held in bondage. Scholars have found histories in both cases of people who left, who escaped these plantations. Nowhere in the tours or in the materials on the walls or in the museums attached to these spaces is that story told. Instead, what we hear at the A.H. Stevens House, for example, A.H. Stevens was the vice president of the Confederacy. We hear about how well he treated the people he enslaved, how happy they were, uh, how good their lives were. He's probably most famous among scholars and people who know anything about him for a fiery speech he gave defending secession um, and defending the Confederacy on the basis that slavery was just. He said, quote, the Negro is not equal to the white man, Mm -hmm. that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This is his most famous Mm -hmm. speech, and that's nowhere to be found at the museum. Instead, we get a picture of him as this sort of benevolent figure. 
Brian Palmer and Seth Fried Wessler are my guests. They're reporters for the investigative fund at the Nation Institute. Through visits and open record requests, they learned like that places like A.H. Stevens State Park in Crawfordsville, Georgia, receive millions of dollars in public funding while often obscuring or conveying inaccurate information about the history of slavery. Their article, Costs of the Confederacy, is in Smithsonian Magazine. Well, I want to go back to Beauvoir because you got some, uh, spoke with some of the people there and got some audio. This is the Jefferson Davis Home and Presidential Library in Biloxi, or near Biloxi, Mississippi. You describe it, you know, centuries-old trees, manicured lawns, tidy cemetery, a babbling brook. And during one of your visits, there was a large group of Mississippi schoolchildren along with Civil War reenactors. Here is one of them telling a version of Civil War history. You see, a Civil War is where one bunch of folks tries to overthrow the government, uh, the sitting government. And we weren't doing that. We wanted to establish our own country. We didn't care that the North carried on and kept going the way they were going. That was fine with us. Just leave us alone. Let us build our own country. That was the version of history that was given to visitors. You did speak to the then executive director, his name, Thomas Paine, about what they were presenting there. What did he tell you? At Beauvoir, on the one hand, they'll tell you, well, our state mandate is to address the period that Jefferson Davis lived here. So that's post-Civil War, 1877 until his death in 1889. But on the other hand, we have this entire room devoted to the Confederate soldier. And then, of course, their annual fall muster, which happened uh, just a few months ago in the fall. That's devoted to Confederate reenactments or uh, mock battles that actually never happened. Once we press people on the issue of slavery or the African-American experience, one of the responses is, well, we don't have enough room on the walls to deal with that. And for me, that, that actually wasn't a good enough answer because there's this strategy that folks who talk about the Confederacy in this lost cause way use, and it's how they deploy the folks they believe are loyal slaves, which they do at Beauvoir. There are a couple of panels on the wall that talk about two formerly enslaved people who came back to serve the Davises. The other side of that, or the context, there are the sins of omission. The 190,000, 200,000 African Americans who served in the United States colored troops, among them my great-grandfather. There are the uh, half a million African Americans who liberated themselves before the end of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And then if we're dealing with that period uh, post-Civil War in Mississippi, there's a whole lot of lynching going on. And there was a whole lot of uh, activity taking place under the, uh, the banner of redemption, which is the, the, you know, in, in 1890, the stripping of African-American men the right to vote, which they won in the Civil War and during Reconstruction. So it is a consistent strategy that relies upon really the co-opting of African-American voices to this cause of a noble, glorious Confederacy and pre-war way of life. This has been a consistent strategy from about 1866. Mm. Well, let me just play another piece of audio and credit also that this is from Reveal. This is a, the investigative t uh, radio program that we broadcast here on GPB, among other places. Uh, you asked a docent at Beauvoir what she could tell you about slavery. 
I want to tell them the honest truth about it, that slavery was good and bad. It was good for the people that didn't know how to take care of themselves and they needed a job. And you had good slave owners like Jefferson Davis who took care of his slaves and treated them like family. He loved them. Well, we have seen in the last couple of years, especially the the more sort of, let's say, historically accurate museums that have been created. Um, just here in Savannah, the Telfair Museum, in a renovation, found all sorts of evidence of the lives of the slaves and slave quarters and are presenting that. More and more plantations mm-hmm. are presenting that. What would you want to see here at these Confederate memorials? Because as we know, there have been arguments for, well, give them context, you know, talk about what was actually going on contextually. Is the issue that you're seeing, like, whose context is actually created and presented? I think there's a great example here, Stone Mountain, right? It is now much more than simply a Confederate site, right? It's a public amenity. It's a Mm -hmm. park. It's this and that. And yet you have that giant mountainside carving, and then you have the Stone Mountain Memorial Association, which is still charged with protecting that Confederate monument. It is organized as a site to perpetuate Confederate history. The idea that it's great for jobs, it's all of this, it's all of that, and yet the central attraction of that place, they got the laser light show and all that other sort of stuff, is a monument to a history that did not occur. So Stone Mountain now has about $13 million in bonds um, allotted for it. Over $200,000 of that money has been dispersed. Now, they'll say, well, that's for a resort and conference center. Well, the money is still going to subsidize this site that, that is built around an object and an ideology that is corrosive to our democracy. Folks will say, oh, well, the black people, they're offended by uh, Robert E. Lee statues. No, what I'm offended by is the lies that allow us to or allow some people to perpetuate this idea that certain people are at the center of our history and other people, black people, Latino people, all sorts of people, are at the periphery. And that's the problem with this type of funding. You found that funds are often allocated by municipal and county coffers and have been for many years. That money has just been channeled in that direction to pay for these kind of monuments and sites. And officials exercise judgment on priorities in those counties. Do you think that taxpayers are aware of how these dollars are being spent? And as you say, by exposing this, maybe people will come forward and say, we don't want our money being spent on this. What, what do you think? What's the effect been so far? I think there's a lot of surprise that there's been public money flowing to these sites from the very beginning and that that public money continues to flow. $40 million at least over the last decade. We certainly missed money at the county and local level um, spent on statues and and monuments. These are public in public spaces. Many of them are public institutions, state parks, and money is flowing to them. And if there's public money going to these institutions, then it would seem to us that there's an obligation to make sure that the histories being told in these spaces conform with the facts and uh, don't try to tell a story of the Confederacy, of Confederate leaders, of Confederate so- soldiers that, fo- that glorifies those people and denies completely 
the reality of the experience of enslaved people, of African-Americans in these very spaces. That was my earlier conversation with Ryan Palmer and Seth Fried Wessler about their investigation for Reveal and the Smithsonian Magazine called Monumental Lies. After we aired the conversation, Sam Burnham, curator of the All the Biscuits in Georgia blog and an On Second Thought guest, disputed their claim, saying, In the author's mind, there is no space for anything positive about the South or the Confederacy. And while a narrative of a guiltless Confederacy is inaccurate, to deny that issues other than slavery played a role not only in the war, but also the way these leaders helped shape the path of the nation is just as inaccurate and wrong. We thank you for your comments, Sam. By unanimous vote, the Peabody Board of Jurors begs to differ, however. They called their investigation a nuanced report that adds depth to current debates about how the public should mark troubling chapters of our national history and explores how lost cause ideology often substitutes for historical accuracy. The series was awarded a Peabody this week. Just ahead, the Black Lips return to their home state for next week's Shaky Knees Festival. We'll talk about the road from Dunwoody High to recording with Yoko Ono, and rumor has it, Kesha. Stay with us for that. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought.